I don't come to this podcast to the interviews with a list of questions. I have no questions. Uh, I tell the women that I talk to, there are only two rules. One, we talk about what you want to talk about. Two, we don't talk about what you don't want to talk about. And that seems to work well. Women are very rarely one-dimensional, and so this conversation bounces all over the place from Denver, Colorado, to what it's like to be hearing impaired, to what it's like to go to college with nothing but women, women teachers, women administrators, women students, and how that changes your education. Then we talk about following one of the early sort of revolutionaries on the cutting edge of what you might call smart development, meaning that making money and making meaning and a meaningful life and culture are not mutually exclusive. And finally, we talk about where this woman is from, which is New Orleans, where she and her husband live now. Their kids have since gone off to school. And why they're thinking of leaving uh, when they did not leave after Katrina. So we cover a lot of ground. We're sitting on the edge of a porch in the Outer Banks off the coast of North Carolina, And so the audio, she speaks softly because of a hearing disability. So the audio is not always the greatest, but the conversation is nonetheless compelling. So thank you for joining us. So this was a really different experience for me. And I just, I was captivated by it and a way to have dying cities revitalize and draw people into it. So that's what I wanted to do. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. I met Melinda Benson at a small gay wedding. I've been to a big gay wedding in Washington. This was a small gay wedding. Out in Denver, Colorado, she and her husband Joe, perfectly lovely people, and then we reunited in the Outer Banks with our friend Jeff and his new husband, and a bunch of us shared a house for a week, and she's just compelling, you know, a compelling conversationalist because there are many dimensions to her. And uh, my producer asked me, how do you describe her? And I don't think there's one word. So I just want you to meet and listen to just a fascinating person, Melinda Benson. Where were you born? Denver, Colorado. I'm the youngest of four and the only girl. My mother always wanted a daughter. I was born around midnight and she said she woke up the whole ward when she found out she had a girl. And were you spoiled? Not from my perspective, right? Your normal is your normal. Where did you guys grow up? Where did you grow up? We grew up in um, southwest Denver in a suburb and um, what made it stand out. My mother had spent all of her summers in the Adirondacks. She lived Upstate on a lake. Upstate New York. Yes, she grew up on a lake and that was very important to her. And when she moved to Denver, she would get sick in the summer if she wasn't at, up in the Adirondacks. She didn't have some uh, exposure to water. And in this particular neighborhood, they had a small lake with a beach and tennis courts and all of that. So it was a thing where she could go and sail and do all of that stuff, but she stopped being sick. What kind of sick? 
You know, I think it probably presented like flu, like just lethargic and achy and and nauseous. I think that's what it was. And I don't know if that persisted. You know, as a child and the youngest one particularly, you don't have, and, and I grew up in this neighborhood, so I never experienced that. I just know from what she said. This sounds like Heidi longing for the mountains. Right, exactly. Have to get back. Exactly. It, I, I think it was like that. And Denver is really, really different than upstate New York. So she was homesick. I had never been to the Adirondacks till I met Lorraine. And oh my God. It's magical, isn't it? Wilderness. Yes. There's a moose. Yeah. It's really magical. We used to um, see deer and deer just in, you know, around the house. But bears wandering, and it, it's, it's magical. I mean, I understand why Mom felt that way. We didn't spend as much time there, but she was there from before Memorial Day until a little after Labor Day, every year of her childhood. I think there's a human longing for genuine wilderness, a place where you can go and see no one else, and those places are becoming kind of hard. Rarer and rarer. Yes. Yeah. I think there's a longing for that. To it's be. very calming and sort of anchoring, I think. Now, forgive me that this is rude, but you oh, wear hearing aids? Yes, I do. Did so. that happen at birth? It's genetic. Really? Yeah, all the women on my father's side. All of them? My daughter, my niece, my aunt. What yes. do you call the, What do you call it? Is there a name? For the uh, what I tell my daughter is it's your inheritance. <laughs> was she pissed? My daughter looked. She, she with, thought she she had some other thoughts about inheritance. My my daughter when she'll point to her acne and she'll go, "Thanks, Dad." <laughs> I'm like, "You're welcome. You got a lot of other stuff too. Went along with it. It was a package deal. Came with the package, you right, know." Right. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a genetic thing. So when I was less than 12, they, they were recommending that I get hearing aids, which I didn't. I didn't have hearing aids until I was in my 30s, and I didn't wear them all the time. And then I stepped up because my daughter, when she was five, I had her tested because I knew to look for it. And at five, they suggested that she have hearing aids. And so I wanted to, I didn't realize how much I was missing, and it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now, my hearing, and I wanted to model that for her, because I knew what she would be facing. So it's progressive? Yeah. And do you know from uh, other women, does it become complete? Is, does it ever become? No. It doesn't I mean, ever. It, I, it's the only one that I know. My grandmother could still hear the last time that I saw her, and my aunt could still hear, but dramatically reduced. It's a struggle. It's, it's a real struggle. Do you think it affected your grades when you did not have? I always would sit close to the front. I was like the teachers, so that wasn't a problem for me. I liked that, and I would work hard. That, that, I don't think so. No, I don't think grades. Well, but so it in, impacts just interactions in general. Like one-on-one, -on -one, it's probably not so hard where I can see you and I can read your lips. But in an environment where there are lots of people and there's any background noise, I'm going to miss more than 50%, even with hearing aids. That's annoying. Like if you go to a cocktail party, dinner party, whatever, like socialization. It's hard. It's hard. 
How were you able to counsel your daughter about navigating that? I tell everybody that I'm hard of hearing or I'm deaf. I mean, I, I try and make light of it, but I try and announce it so that accommodations are made, which as a child I was embarrassed by. It felt to me like it was such a, it was something to be hidden. And I didn't want my daughter to have that experience. And that's not the way she is. She is quick to acknowledge and announce. And it just makes it easier, I've found. But it took me a long time to learn that. And since the loss is on my father's side, um, my mom didn't understand that. And my dad didn't understand that because he didn't have that. So that was something that I felt like I could give to her for something she was going to deal with forever. What's an example or a story of missed cues or missed, like a misunderstanding because you're not getting the full? Oh, there are a zillion. So the conversation at dinner, in four of us, something will be said, I totally misinterpret it, and I have a response that causes wild laughter because it's so off of what it was. I can't give you a specific at this moment. I do remember having coffee with a friend and my daughter was there and my friend's daughter was there and my friend said something and I said did you just say that you snorted coke and she said I I did not say that no <laughs> I said okay it seemed out of character but I, I just wanted to be sure <laughs> when I was younger though if it seemed like it was wrong I would just be quiet I would just stay quiet instead of highlight that I really didn't understand. And standardly what I'll say is like, if, you, if I don't understand you once, I'll ask you once, maybe twice, and then it's not important. And then you'll look at me and you say, but you didn't answer my question. You know, do you have a zebra? <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever the question is. And so You anticipated my next question. <laughs> You, you don't have a zebra. I do not. I do not have a and, zebra. And you're not snorting coke no. either. We're not. Neither not, of those things not have currently. I ever even, in fact. <laughs> did anyone ever label you or did you ever like internalize, I am disabled? More now than ever because the hearing is, is dramatic. I mean, it's between 65 and 75% of loss. So it's a pretty significant amount. So now I do. Like I think your husband, no, our friend Jeff said, sit on the side porch. That way you can face each other. True. Yes. So in my career, I was a property manager and retail leasing agent, and so one of the things that I would do was walk the property daily just to see, is everybody open, maintenance crews doing what they're, whatever. One of my merchants said, I followed you the entire shopping center calling your name. And I said, oh, from behind? Oh, no. Yeah, that's not going to work. Don't hear in the dark. Don't hear if I can't see your lips moving. You also probably have had it happen that people get angry. They like think you're ignoring them. Yes. Like they take it personally. Right. Because why wouldn't you? You don't expect deafness. I, I remember standing um, at the back of an auditorium and like, I, I can't understand what they're saying. And the person next to me looked at me just 
like unbelieving. What do you mean you can't understand? Like it's hard to put yourself in someone else's sensory perceptions and understand that in any way. So that's not the norm. Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. It's irritating for all. It's, it, it, it is what it is. How about when there's something really important like a, a college interview or a job interview? Well, then my hearing was better. So that wasn't as much of a problem. And one-on-one, -on -one, unless it's what I call a really soft talker or really in a range that I don't hear well, back when that was happening, I, I could hear much better. And now what I would do is say, I have a very severe hearing loss. So I may look at you this way, and I, that means I need, to under, you know, I need for you to repeat a few more times. And I may irritate you by asking several times about things. But you're not shy. I mean, if you don't pick up on something, you're not going to pretend no. or try to fill in, in the gaps. Well, you do always try and fill in the gaps by either the tone of the conversation, body language, whatever. You definitely try and fill in a lot of the gaps. That's a big part. And not having hearing aids for so long, I compensated through those things. So I can read lips better than I probably would if I had had hearing aids earlier. I don't find that people are they're surprised and it's hard to remember that's what I find more is people forget that you don't hear well and you just go on but I, I don't find people get angry it's just irritating yeah. except for my kids they become impatient and say never mind never mind it's not important I'm like every, I, I want to know what you say but your daughter shouldn't I mean she's probably more patient right she well sort of but her loss is much less than mine, and hopefully always will be, hopefully. But she, saw, she was also a teenager at one point, you know, so I was just irritating anyway. <laughs> this was just another example of it. <laughs> it's the, what do they call it? The attribution error, that it's always your fault. It's, <laughs> You're always it looking to blame someone. Of course it is. That's, it's, it's really funny, we do. We, we become impatient and blame people for their disability, you know, because you're getting in my way. This and is... you don't understand it. Right. Because you don't have it, so it doesn't make sense. Yeah, especially when that disability is like Tourette's or, uh, you know, something that's like not understood, you know, bipolar disorder, right. you know. <laughs> substance use disorder, I want to say. That's, that's a biggie, <laughs> you know, you're doing this too. Just to irritate me. Yeah. 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 In high school, what'd you do? What'd you, what'd you like doing? What'd you enjoy doing? I loved high school. Um, I did as many things as I could. I did drama. I did yearbook. I did the newspaper. I went to a small school. I did work. I loved school. I, I loved it. I did modern dance. I, I was my last few years in high school. I was there from eight o'clock until midnight sometimes with extracurriculars and stuff. Oh, I loved it. It was great. It was great. Were you a good student? I was a good student. Yeah. And so at age 18, you decided to go where? Western Massachusetts, Smith College. Oh. Now, they call it one of the seven sisters, they right? Do. Now it's co-ed, or nope. is it? No, still. Single sex. It went from 
they leaned into that. They did. And said, they we're going to be about women's empowerment. Right. I, I think that, I don't know if this was what was said or if it was my creation about my experience there, but that they provided an environment where women are the focus and don't modify for men in their classes, in the way that they interact academically. Um, and educationally, it was an extraordinary experience. It was, it was great. It was really great. So when you're, what did that look like? Like, give me an example of how this, this syllabus will not be modified this I think that it's more about the way that and this probably isn't true any longer and it may not have been true then but that women would modify their own behavior when there were men in the class not that the syllabus wouldn't necessarily be different but that the way that women the stereotypes about what women were supposed to be this is the late 70s early 80s um, was impacted by having men in the class, and so if that was true or not true, I don't, I don't know. But that that seemed to be, you know, like this is just for women. You're going to go change the world. And I'll tell you, when I read the alumni magazine, whether it's marketing or just reality, they're changing the world. They really are. What's the first thing you noticed? There were. There were boys in high school, right, in yes. your classes. Yeah. So what's the first thing you noticed when you got to Smith about the way class discussion proceeds in terms of who gets to speak or, or ask a question? Well, I think then in reality, you're, the, everyone's character comes out as it, you know, there are those who speak because they just are inclined to do that. There are those who are quieter because they're inclined to do that anyway. Um, but there was no social posturing in class. What does that look like? I mean, what does that mean? Like There's no flirting. There's no dressing for anybody there. There's no seating the floor ah. to a, an ego that you perceive to need that attention, to endear yourself to that ego. Right? Does that make sense? It does, but I'm curious. Women have egos. Yes. There, there are women. Yes. So a woman with a big ego, how does it manifest differently than a man with a big ego? Probably not any differently, but I'm not going to see, I'm using myself as an example, and I don't have a memory specifically of this, but. I'm not going to cede to a female the same way that I might to a man that I thought was attractive who, because women are supposed to be polite, right? Women are supposed to be nice. All of those stereotypes don't necessarily apply in the same way in a women in all female environment. But what did I think when I first walked in? So when I looked at colleges, it was in the summer. And so when I went to Smith, one, it's gorgeous. And, I, and it was in impeccable condition. And I thought, the people that go here must love it because they take good care of it. So this is a 17 or 18-year-old perspective of what things are without 
knowing about the term endowment <laughs> and that there's a financial structure that supports it to look like that. But I really interpret it like they must love it here without actually seeing them. So when I showed up and I'm in my first class and I'm looking around and I'm like, it's all girls. It's all, it's all girls. Everywhere it's girls. Like it, there's a, there was a disconnect between the intellectual, like it's all women. And once I got there, it's like, but wait, it's, it's all women. Every, it's all women. That was surprising. And you sound like, funny? and that's a great thing. I'd, I had to laugh at myself because it was surprising. And I'm like, why is it surprising? You knew that it was all women. But it's just, it was a different thing to experience and, than it was to have the idea it's all women. When you're in an environment in which you can just be who you are, mm -hmm. you all of a sudden realize how much energy it takes to be in an environment where you have to play a role, where you have to be some. Like, it's exhausting to it have is. to. Well, but don't you think all of growing up is really like putting on costumes and then Trying figuring it on. out which one fits? Yeah. So that's just part of the process of that. And so, what, so Smith, what it didn't offer was the social costume try-on. That part didn't exist in a organic way. You know, Friday afternoon, busloads of men would show up for the weekend. Maybe they had a place to stay, maybe they didn't. Maybe they were just hopeful. You know, so that's, that's very artificial. So in that way, it was not a great experience. Academically, it was a great experience. There's also this phenomenon, I've got to ask you, I know it's a cliche. <laughs> uh, uh, gay for the stay, lesbian until graduation. Did you witness, did you witness this phenomenon? I didn't. I didn't. And I, I think there's a defensiveness, at least when I was there, about that perception, because it's like, lesbian population at Smith is the same as it is in the general population. Yeah. And I, I uh, They could be more out. Shoulders. They could be more out. They could be more out. They could be more out. Yeah. So I don't I don't have a sense of it being more or less, I guess, but it it, it had to be more because it was still relatively early in my life and our society was entirely different. Um, so it wasn't an issue at Smith, I guess, and in that way that would be different. Late 70s was certainly, uh, was after Roe v. Wade, it was after the publication of The Feminine Mystique, right. but it had been less than 10 years, and it was after uh, Gloria Steinem and... A Smithy. Really? Yes. I'd love to talk to her. Put me in touch. Um, <laughs> I remember uh, she was at one of the reunions and her classmates, you know, she was being asked, how was that? How was it to go back? Now you're really famous and everything. How were your classmates about all that? And she said, mostly they were just jealous that I'm thin. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> what spoke to you? What class lit you up? History.
what kind of history? That's I was an art history major. The reason I was an art history major. So when I was looking at colleges, I went to Boston, and I experienced Faneuil Hall, which was pretty new then, relatively, and I was blown away. And I decided I'm working for that company when I graduate. So everything was geared towards working for the Rouse Company. Well, when you say you experienced Faneuil Hall. I went to Faneuil Hall, and it was different than any retail experience I'd ever had in an urban environment. It's, you're, you're familiar. Okay, so Faneuil Hall. Only vaguely. Okay, so Faneuil Hall is a collection. It's ancient buildings, you know, United States timeline-wise that had been renovated and refurbished for retail and restaurant use, right downtown near the harbor. And it was alive and they had street performers and it was just a really, for me, a brand new experience. And I grew up in Denver where in the 60s and 70s, a lot of buildings were torn down, you know, to make everything modern. So this was a really different experience for me, and I just, I was captivated by it, and a way to have dying cities revitalize and draw people into it. So that's what I wanted to do. And so when I chose art history, it was because I wanted to work for a developer that did this kind of thing. And I, architecture, my junior year, I spent a year in New York studying architecture in order to, that, in my own mind, preparing me for this. Wow. So. Um, that doesn't happen very often. It doesn't, I don't think it does. And, and it wasn't until after I graduated that I even reached out to the Rouse Company. So I had it in my own mind, but the action was a little on delay. So that took a little bit of time, but there was a development happening in Denver when I graduated and I just bugged the bejesus out of them until they finally laid down and said, all right, we will hire you. Please stop calling. And I had a fabulous career. So, that so no restraining order. <laughs> no restraining orders. <laughs> it, exactly. it worked out well. <laughs> it wasn't stalkery. It was, it was persistence in a good way. The thing is, is that it is so refreshing and I just, please, dear God, tell me it's still done. Like when I think commercial real estate development, three of the last words I think are art, history, and community. <laughs> That's like the last, I think money, money, and like more money. Well, Jim Rouse was really an extraordinary person. Visionary. He saw this as a way to bring people back into downtowns. And he wasn't, the money wasn't what drove him. It was creating community that drove him. So um, probably that isn't a, a standard experience when you talk about development, but that certainly was my experience at the Rouse Company and in watching the work that he did. And he was gone by the time that I got there. He personally was gone, and he'd gone on to start a different company called Enterprise, 
where they were really doing community building. And so like the Morgan's Adam area in DC, he went into this, it was a very impoverished area. Partnered with um, nonprofits, a lot of church groups and neighborhood groups, and bought buildings and refurbished them and sold them as condos to people who from the neighborhood after they had created a series, you know, sort of passed a sustainability test that they were going to be able to keep this going, but sold it at an affordable way. But they also included then there was a childcare center in the neighborhood and there was just a whole bunch of other infrastructure that are required to make neighborhoods work and they made sure that existed but it felt organic not created and it worked to the point that then it gentrified and people were moved out and all of that but it in the creation of it something different had really happened there that doesn't happen organically often. I think it was masterful. I'm not as eloquent in the way I'm speaking it, but it was really amazing. When I went, because I interviewed with Enterprise as well, and when I went to see what they were doing, I was, I was dumbfounded. And he funded that through developing shopping centers. Katrina, for all its devastation, afforded these little points of light. Right, silver linings for sure. It changed New Orleans in a lot of ways, and it brought thousands of young people to New Orleans to help with the rebuild, relocating there. That was fabulous. We have benefited from that, for sure. And then thousands and thousands of people never came back. So part of what was lost when I moved to New Orleans it was extremely provincial, and I'm sure it was less provincial than it had been years before that. People who were born in New Orleans would mostly stay in New Orleans, and family was very, very important, and friends from kindergarten, and you know, were friends in, when you were an adult. I mean, it was really unusual, and that has been diminished because so many people have left, and so many new people have come in, and some of that, those old ways are slipping away. It's positive and negative, right? Those values of art and history and community and culture, you think they're in your DNA? You think it's something your parents showed you? Do you think it's, um, did, did you just like decide on that? Where does that come from? It, you know, I remember as a child going down to a one block development in Denver, Larimer Square, and they would do a Christmas walk and there were chestnuts roasting and it was all decorated, it was very magical in this downtown that had been leveled and um, high rises and, and modern buildings had been built instead. And so this was magical to me. And history, history has always been interesting. Family history and what was has always been interesting to me. But this one development, Larimer Square, was, seemed pretty magical. And, my dad knew the woman who developed it, and it was a woman that developed it. And so that was really interesting, because that's not something I was familiar with. So I'm sure that that is what really kicked it off. And I did work there for one of my summers in college. I guess that it was what I saw at Faneuil Hall on a smaller scale, and in a city that had 
prided itself on being modern, it, it seemed to me like a gem. And what happened to your home in Katrina? Eight and a half feet of water for a house on uh. slab. It got really wet. Where were you as the home was being we, filled with water? Oh, while it was underwater and after. So um, my husband's company had a disaster plan. Oh and my God, how wonderful. They had, and that disaster plan was in New Jersey. The corporate base was in New Orleans, but they had a huge facility in New Jersey, just across from uh, New York. And so we went there. They were exceptionally generous. They set the kids up in school. And we were there for six or seven weeks. And then we were back in New Orleans just before Halloween. And we found an apartment, and it was phenomenal, right on St. Charles Avenue. I mean, we had, like, with the exception of losing the house, we had an unrealistically positive experience through Katrina, as opposed to so many. Does your daughter remember that? Just a little bit. She was five, you know, so she'd started kindergarten two weeks before the storm hit. Um, Memories are a little bit fuzzy during that time. I think, you know, at five, it's just beginning. So she, she remembers some of it, but I think she remembers it more by the stories that we tell than some of the reality. It was a, it was a hard time for her in reality, in watching. There was a lot of sadness, it's a lot of loss of the things that she had found comfort in before in her own space. I don't get a sense that she had a great memory of it. She doesn't have much memory of the house that we lived in before, for instance. And my son, who's two and a half years younger, has no real memory of it. He has the memories of, of whatever his imagination has created based on the stories that we share. Well, it's knowing that home equals safety. And it's always knowing, no, this could go away. I think that it's the lack of safety feeling that was so disorienting. And it was hard, that was novel to me. I'd never had that experience. And I shared that with somebody, and his response was, but you know, you never really were safe ever. Right? That, that doesn't exist exactly. You're safe. So that was a little sobering. Well, there's a difference between knowing. I know a meteor could there. Right, exactly. You know, exactly. And feeling. Right. So we feel safe about a whole host of things. What happened to that house? We tore it down. Did you watch it while we they watched it? We had lived in the house for a little less than three years. So we didn't have this long history. So for Joe and I that wasn't as hard. And I I'm kind of captivated by large pieces of equipment. So seeing this huge thing just decimate a house in a matter of 20 minutes was, was kind of an extraordinary thing to me. Um, and we had, we had plans already to rebuild, so we knew what the future was going to look like. Um, so we went with Champagne, you know, that morning to watch it come down and... Rebuild on the same spot? Rebuilt on the same spot, six feet in the air so that we wouldn't have exactly that experience again. And what happened but with Ida? Not much for us. 
personally, not much. We had very little damage. Our neighborhood didn't have a lot of damage. I mean, we had damage. It was 135 mile an hour winds, but nothing in comparison to Katrina. And Katrina is the benchmark now. So everything short of that is what we did okay. Yeah. And so many didn't. So we were very lucky. You think you'll stay? I'll stay for a while anyway, at retirement. So we kind of look around a little bit and say, well, maybe there's someplace else. Maybe, you know. Now Joe is from me. New Orleans. Joe That's is from New Orleans. Home for me is Denver. Home for me is always Denver. So Denver is appealing as a place to go. And Joe likes it and the kids like it. Not that that determines, but I'm also kind of waiting to see where do they go? Where does their life take them? And is there a place for us in that? So we're flexible, we're flexible. And Joe's mom is, is doing great and we're gonna be in New Orleans for a while longer for sure. Oh, that's wonderful. It's such a unique place. Well, Denver's unique too, but they're very different cultures. Yes. New Orleans is intimate and embracing and joyous in many ways um, that doesn't exist other places. So if we leave, I know that I will miss that. Um, but also, you know, I found when I moved there, the things that I loved about it were also the things that I hated about it because people have friends from the time that they were five, so it was hard for me to sort of, it took a long time to feel settled in New Orleans because people had their their infrastructure and their social world pretty well set. And it was so foreign to me. It, it, that, that took a while to, and the provinciality of, you know, New Orleans was the center of the world and why would you ever go anywhere else? I found bewildering. But music, food, architecture, it's, it's all like one History of a kind. And yes. valuing all of that, as opposed to coming from a place where we erased it because the future was more valuable than the past and the present. What about your mother, that you are your mother, like you're, she's in you, like you're like her, and in what ways are you Melinda, your, or your father? Yeah, but dad was a big, big presence. My father was an old, old, old soul. And he was just a wise and calm person who pretty much saw the world in optimistic ways. Uh, my mom was more aspiring and hard on herself if she didn't achieve that, whatever that was, whatever that aspiration was. You know, the, the perfect family, perfect home, you know, checking all those boxes. Um, she had, her family history had been wealthy. Her personal family was not through some, my grandfather died when my mom was really, really young. So I used to say she grew up with the worst room in the best hotel. <laughs> the one next to the elevator and the ice machine and you know, the linens didn't get changed as much. And she, so I think that there was always this sense of not being quite enough. Where did their money come from? Was it hotels? No, um, I think that my great-great-grandfather 
ran was a printer, and he printed catalogs, big catalogs, like Sears catalogs. Oh, okay. So I think that that was where the money came from. Wow. Yeah. Did you grow up going to church, going to temple? Did you grow up in any kind of religious training? Grew up going to church. Um, never fully embracing. It was more a social construct that we needed to do on Sunday. My mom, it was really important to my mom. So we, we did it. And as soon as I could stop doing it, I stopped doing it. Where did your values come from, do you think? From getting an education and like seeing the world, from seeing your parents? I, I remember mom telling us point blank, the most important thing to me about you all is that you are responsible, that you take responsibility for your actions, that you know that you are responsible for what you do. So that one, for sure, my father's was all about honesty. And like in Denver, um, during droughts, you couldn't water your lawn just any time and then have odd, odd and even days when you could water your lawn. And in the neighborhood that I grew up in, your lawn was an important component to, to the evaluation by the neighbors. My father would never water on his not watering day. Other neighbors, you know, you'd hear their sprinkler system go on at 2 a.m. and uh, to get around the, the. So dad was like, he would never. And he also, I remember him saying, I would really like to try marijuana. I wish it was legal. I'm really curious what it feels like. He didn't live to see it. He didn't live to see it. There were very clear standards of, of character in our family and our parents modeled it. So it just became expected. I remember a friend coming over one day and she said, there is always money out at your house. There's money sitting on the table and nobody touches it. I said, well, it's, that's not for me. That's either, you know, maybe dad left that for mom to cover something or that's for one of the boys that are gonna do, you know, that's not mine. So, and that was just, that was puzzling to the friend and I was puzzled that they were puzzled. So I guess whatever your norm is, and I think the modeling for me was, was a big part of that. If we get struck by lightning yes. and the only thing that survives is this little piece of audio, uh, what is your legacy? These are tough questions. That's your job. I would hope that it's character. What I hope for, that my children have, that I have influenced, is integrity, compassion, being able to put yourself into somebody else's perspective, try on that for a while, to be more human. Um, to recognize that you have a responsibility to the community and try and make the world better. Those are, those are all attempts, you know, they're not achievements, but that's what I would hope. Value your time. This has been such a privilege. I wish we could talk for a long, I could talk to you about a lot of these different things on and on.
But thank you for your time, Melinda. Thank you. A couple of program notes. I'm still on the HBO documentary series, The Way Down. T-H-E-W-A-Y-D-O-W-N, The Way Down. And the filmmaker, Marina Zinovich, was part of this podcast in January this year. And uh, she since sent me something that says uh, the way down HBO is saying is the most watched documentary series debut in its history. I think I have that right. And people in Nashville and around the country are commenting about it. I'm going to be on Sherry Lynch on the Bob and Sherry Oddcast on their podcast on Monday. And I love talking to her. And Sherry Lynch has been a part of this podcast. So you may want to check those couple of things out. Plus, next week, we're going to be uh, going over to Maryville, which some people call Maryville, Tennessee, to talk to a fellow adoptee, uh, Jamie Weiss. And then the week after that, talking to a friend of mine in Weaverville, North Carolina, outside Asheville, Sarah Frisbee. So lots of great things coming up. Thanks for listening. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening in whatever way you have from the very beginning. Thanks so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. I was never alone. God was with me. He did not cause that to happen, but he knew what was going to happen and he was always there with me. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks. Thanks.